Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the next podcast, COVID-19 Special Edition. Grace Church members, Nexters, anybody else that wandered into this podcast by accident, look, I'm really glad you could join us today. I hope what you hear over the next few minutes will add some value to your life, and by the time we are done, you will find yourself encouraged, inspired, and challenged to get better and keep growing into the next phase of who God has designed you to be. You know where I'm at today? I'm back in my closet. That worked out pretty well last week. So uh, y'all think I'm weird already, so what difference does it make? Look, we're going to continue this series that we've been in for a while, Stuff Jesus Said. After today, we'll have two more lessons in this series, and then we will be moving on to other things. You know, the Bible is a rich book. It is full, and I don't think we're going to run out of material anytime in 2020. We should be set. We should be good for a while. Y'all hang with me. We'll learn some stuff. Look, I think it's kind of funny. Nobody, zero people, texted me this past week to tell me about how much they appreciated and how much they got out of last week's lesson on blessed are the persecuted. Not a single person. Not really all that surprising, I don't guess. I didn't expect a big uh, round of applause for that one. I don't imagine Jesus got a standing ovation the day he preached it either. Some of the stuff Jesus said, man, it's hard to digest sometimes, isn't it? Kind of uncomfortable to live out. I mean, what's the deal, Jesus? Why are you being so difficult? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Love your enemies. Forgive others. You can't love God and money. Blessed are the persecuted. All this stuff you said is challenging to live out in real life. I mean, what's the deal? Where is my warm, fuzzy, doe-eyed, sheep-holding Jesus who just makes me feel better? Well, you know what, Nexters? I... Don't know if that Jesus ever really existed, but something I've realized over the last couple of months, I need a strong voice in my life that will tell me the truth that I need to hear when I need to hear it in a way that I can receive it. So let's dive in today. Let's get into the voice of truth and look at some stuff Jesus said about family. What comes to mind when you hear that word, family? I'll give you a few seconds just to think about it. What do you think of when you hear family? Do you see faces? Remember places and events? Do you get a, a feeling? Family is one of those emotionally charged words for us, depending on our experience. Jesus had some things to say about family, and we want to look at one of those sayings today. It's found in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, and I will be reading from the New International Version. So Mark 3, 31 through 35, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I'm going to go way back on this one, but maybe some of you will remember this movie. Mrs. Doubtfire came out in 1993, starred Robin Williams as the would-be nanny to an affluent family. And in the closing scene, Mrs. Doubtfire responds to a letter from a young girl who was struggling with her parents' divorce. And this is what Mrs. Doubtfire said. She said, there are all sorts of families, Katie. Some families have one mommy. Some families have one daddy or two families. Some children live with their uncle or aunt. Some live with their grandparents. And some children live with their foster parents. Some live in separate homes and neighborhoods in different areas of the country. They may not see each other for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. But if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind. And you'll have a family in your heart forever. I don't know how you feel about that. Some people when the movie came out, didn't care much for Mrs. Doubtfire's observations on family. I would argue that she's simply engaging with the world as it was in 1993 and still is here today in 2020. You know, instead of some sugary Hollywood happily ever after ending, she's dealing with some real world stuff. You know, there's a lot of fractured families out there. Because families are made up of sinful, imperfect human beings. And because of that, families are quite often messy, complicated, infuriating, harmful, hurtful. But they can also be caring, nurturing, forgiving, and frustrating. Sometimes in a single 24-hour period. They are seldom what we want them to be all of the time, and in ways that we probably will never fully understand, families shape us. They shape how we look at other people. They shape our perceptions about God. Families shape our perceptions about what love is. Families, man, they they are complicated things. And for everything that's good about the family unit, and for all of the commitment that conservative Christians make to family, these words of Jesus from Mark chapter 3, they, they come as a bit of a shock. They jar our cultural sensibilities. I mean, this is Jesus. <laughs> he's all about love and family. And here in Mark 3, he's challenging the very idea of what we normally think of as family. It's an alternative view. You know, at first glance, this statement of Jesus in Mark 3 seems to belittle his biological family. And he's definitely placing a higher value on something else other than blood ties and shared genetic material. In this statement, Jesus tells those following him who their family really is. The fellow followers of Jesus. And he also highlights a pretty awesome truth. 
as his followers, we are welcomed into his family. Jesus calls those who follow him his brothers and sisters. And you're like, okay, Jason, I've been with you on this series for a while. You always try to turn this into like something bad or make it something I didn't think of. So where are you going with this? How, how is that bad? There's no problem with this one, right, Jason? Not like the other stuff Jesus said we've looked at before. This one's all good, right? Well, <laughs> let's look at it again and consider the context in which he said it. You know, while I'm on the topic, let me just say for the record, in case you haven't heard it before, context matters. Anytime we are digging into Scripture, it's good for us to consider the context in which the passage appears. Both the context of the events around the passage and the cultural context into which it was originally spoken. What was said in the Scriptures immediately before the passage? Who was it spoken to? What happened after it was said? Scripture Folks, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. And if we're going to be serious about following Jesus, we really need to think about the context of the stuff he said. Okay, back on point. Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. In other words, Jesus, you need to get up from these strangers you're sitting in a circle with here in this house and go outside and, and talk to your mama and, and your brothers. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In these five verses, Jesus is boring down deep into the foundations of his Hebrew Jewish society. And essentially, he's, he's planting some high-powered explosives into some deep holes. He is inverting and redefining what family is. Get a grip on this. Jesus is saying, you think I should stop what I'm doing right now and go out and meet my biological family because you think and you've been taught that family is ABCXYZ. Family is bloodlines and DNA and mommies and daddies. You think your primary community is your little nuclear biologically related family. Jesus said, but I'm blowing that out of the water because family isn't that. Your primary community is the community of those who follow me. The most significant people in your life, the people who have the greatest influence and hold the greatest sway over your decisions are fellow believers in me. Whoa. <laughs> wow. That, that's pretty shocking. That, that kind of sounds like fanaticism. That sounds like that weird cultish stuff with mass suicides, like fundamentalist weirdo stuff of the worst kind, social error on par with the unthinking devotion of suicide bombers. That's the territory we're going into here. This saying makes people uncomfortable. It's a switch in loyalty, right? To the point that they want to reinterpret what Jesus is saying here. 
we want some type of relief to come along and and show us why it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Because we all know that being a good Christian means being faithful to family. Think about how much we evaluate gospel faithfulness based on a person's fidelity to the nuclear family, the biological family. In our society, a faithful believer is first and foremost committed to their marriage, to their kids, to their parents, to their siblings, to their spouse. We even elect politicians and make decisions about leaders in our country based on their commitment to, what is it, family values. Family values are important, right? Commitment to family has got to be first. That's got to be front and foremost in the kingdom of God for sure. Some of you out there, you're like, if I were looking you in the eyeballs right now, instead of staring at this row of shirts in my closet, I, I could I could see the wheels turning. Coop, I'm, I'm not too sure I like your tone on this one right now. Where's this lesson in the in this series that's lasted for too long, where's, where's this lesson really going? Are you saying that we can just ignore our spouse, ignore our kids, live here at church whenever we get back to church, never work, take care, never don't worry about taking care of the house, and all of our time and energy should just be spent at the church? No, come on, of course not. Of course, the Bible calls us to faithfulness in our families and to our God-designed and God-appointed roles within our biological families. Parents are to be honored. Scripture makes no bones about it. Children are to be cared for and instructed. The Bible is very clear about that. Wives and husbands are to enjoy a mutual and exclusive intimacy and, and relationship with each other. But for so many the nuclear family is the defining element in their lives. Happiness and purpose and fulfillment are found in that nuclear family. And people will sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of it and believe that they are acting virtuously while doing so. And for many of us, it's because the nuclear family has become a replacement for church, a replacement for the church. Well, it's due in no small measure to the fact that church is often little more than a weekly event or a formal institution for people. Jesus provides very little encouragement for that point of view, folks. His mother and brothers call for him, and not only does he not meet their expectations, but he even calls into question their status and maybe even their very identity. Jesus shows no deference no sense of obligation to that biological family in this passage. Ooh, here it comes. For those of you that have hung in with me this far, get ready. Instead, Jesus shows that the claims of his biological family upon him are no stronger than those of the relative strangers with him in the room. That is, if they do the will of God. Jesus is saying their claims on me are the same. Let's look at it in context. 
Earlier on in Mark 3, we see Jesus appointing a group often known as the 12, the 12 disciples, the select band of men that he chose to be with him during his earthly ministry and whom he would call apostles. Jesus knew. It wasn't an accident. He knew the significance of the number 12. You Sunday school churchy people, you know, the number 12 points back to the Old Testament and the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus appoints the 12 apostles, he's making a statement about reconstituting the people of God under his rule. To use the corporate term, folks, this is organizational restructuring. Just as God originally defined his people and organized them into the 12 tribes under the Mosaic Covenant, Jesus, who is that Old Testament God made flesh, has the same right to define what and who made up the people of God under this new covenant of the gospel. So Old Testament God creates 12 tribes of Israel, and that is the people of God. New Covenant, Jesus, God made flesh, steps in and says, "Mm, there's a new definition of what people of God means. There's a new definition of what family means. Not only does Jesus, the Messiah, have the authority to define what it means to be a part of God's family, he's also got the power to do it. He's got the authority to do it because he's the Old Testament God made flesh, but he's also got the power to do it. Context, remember? Remember the miracles recorded in the first three chapters of Mark. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing all sorts of sicknesses. That shows that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. This man is something else, something they hadn't encountered before. So his choice of 12 apostles isn't some silly arbitrary posturing in front of his followers, Jesus is saying, this is the new definition. This is community. But he doesn't stop there. He says, this community made up of those who follow me is not only the real community that God has been working toward all along, but it's also the real family. Some of y'all struggling with this. I can feel it. Feel it. That's okay. You know, I've put this topic off for like over a month. Maybe it's because there's been too much family. Topic was too close for comfort. I don't know. We'll analyze me later. But maybe it'll help if we draw a parallel with marriage. You know, one of the reasons marriage exists is to point to the ultimate relationship between Christ and his church. Watch this. The relationship between Christ and his church is not meant to point us to marriage, as if marriage between a man and a woman itself were the most important thing. No, that's backwards. No, marriage is intentionally created as a signpost to demonstrate that all-important relationship between Christ and the body of the church. That, that order is vital. Don't get it twisted. Well, it's, just, it's the same way with family. Just as marriage between a man and woman points toward that higher relationship between Christ and the church, it's the same way with the nuclear biological family. It was formed as a prototype 
of the eternal community that Jesus is creating. We haven't seen it yet. It's in process. But paternal relationships, sibling relationships, and all of their complex mix of joy and irritation, they're designed to give us an insight into what being brothers and sisters in Christ is all about. You know, my parents got divorced when I was very young. Um, I don't think anyone at Grace Church knows my biological father, Richard. Most of you that, that know my dad, whenever you hear me talk about my dad, you think of, of Billy Dean. Um, I, I was very young when Richard left to go do other things, and he pretty much disappeared from my life for 40 years and after Richard left, Mom met a wonderful man named Billy Dean. Uh, Billy had also been divorced. You know, Billy never treated me like anything other than his own flesh and blood. He was a good man. He wasn't perfect, but he was a good man and he was a good dad. And as far as he was concerned, I was his son. And whenever I was old enough to understand what it meant, we talked about it, and we took the steps to legally change my last name to his last name. See, prior to me being 10 years old, 9, 10 years old, my last name was Malone. But you guys know me as, as Coop, as Cooper. We, we changed my last name to his last name. And the way that Billy accepted me and loved me and adopted me as a young child is such a wonderful example that God has given me of what family is all about, community, family. It's not defined by human blood. The parameters and boundaries and safe walls of family, listen to me, they are set by divine blood, his blood. The beauty of Christ's definition of family is that it works both ways. If your experience with family has been one of brokenness and pain and separation and strife or, or even abuse, if that's been your experience, then the restorative grace of being welcomed into the family of God brings freedom and hope, and peace, and nurturing. But on the other hand, if your experience with your biological family has been the enjoyment of what we would call a happy family life, well, then it gives great opportunity for you to bless others with what you have learned, enjoyed, and experienced through positive earth family relationships. Isn't that awesome? The way... The family of God, defined by divine blood, works both ways. Look, there, there is tons more here, but I've got to finish. So, when I was completing the eighth grade, I'm going back a few years here, uh, I had a little part to play in our eighth grade graduation ceremony. I was tasked by Miss Sewell, my eighth grade ELA teacher, uh, 
with reciting the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And I'm not going to give you the entire poem, but I do want to give you the last stanza. The last stanza of the poem Invictus goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Yeah, that's a great final stanza. And I love that poem. It is full of powerful imagery and inspiration. It's a great poem. But despite everything our American society and culture says, y'all listen to me here. We are not the self-ruling, self-governing individuals we like to imagine. It's a great poem, and I really like it. But William Ernest Henley got it wrong. Because here's the reality. The reality is we belong to one another in a very deep and profound sense. We, we do not rule and govern ourselves, but we submit ourselves to one another under Jesus. Let me give you some Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 21, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also, watch this, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Look, the language here in Ephesians 2 is pretty clear. It's pretty awesome. Church is family. We are united together in an eternal family intended to glorify Jesus. Grace Church, you're my tribe. Nexters, you're my people. You are my brothers and sisters. You're my fam. And just like the previous 47 sayings of Jesus, of stuff, the stuff we've looked at, these words Jesus spoke about family, they absolutely wreak havoc with my assumptions. And they mess with my comfortable theology. And they shake me out of these, these ruts of thinking that I've gotten into. But am I glad he said it? Who? you bet I am. We're family, Grace Church. God put us together. And that means you couldn't get rid of me if you wanted to. Hey, speaking of crazy family members, next week, let's look at some stuff Jesus said about don't be angry. Uh-huh. Yeah, it'll be good. Check out the podcast again next week. It'll be fun. Until then, Grace Church, I'm praying for you. Nexters, I'm praying for you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.